0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high-growth and high-values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. Today, I have Patrick Smith, who is co-founder and co-CEO of Free Will, a social venture. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. We talk about his personal journey from being interested in political advocacy work into the startup world through business school, how he practiced the ability to generate startup ideas, how he found his co-founder, and a lot of inspiration for aspiring founders in how you can do it too. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. He's a co-founder of Free Will, a social venture which has helped organizations raise nearly $2 billion in new planned gifts, stock gifts, and qualified charitable contributions. Patrick and his co-founder Jenny were recently named two of the top 50 philanthropists in the world by town and country. From 2009 to 2010, Patrick ran email fundraising for President Obama, where his team invented many of the existing practices in digital fundraising. He served as head of innovation at Change.org, helping to grow that organization to 200 million members in just four years. He received his bachelor's from Georgetown and his MBA from Stanford. During this session, he opens up about his own process, how to have ideas, how to have a co-founder, how to develop values. All of these things should be exciting and interesting if you're an aspiring founder, if you're a current founder, or you know them. So please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Miles, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful to have a founder who has done so much in so short of time. I'm so impressed as an investor and as a fan uh, and a user. Um, I'm grateful, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I wanted to dive in today of like, how did you become an entrepreneur? You started in a different career path was this always the plan or how did you end up here?
1: This wasn't really the plan. And, and growing up, I certainly didn't think a lot about startups and definitely didn't think a lot about business. I think I grew up in a family that really focused on social good and social impact. And most of my thinking growing up was, okay, how do I how do I have any impact at all in the world? And early off, that started off doing some volunteering, sort of got out of volunteering because it felt like it wasn't impactful enough and, and pulled back a little bit during college. And then in college, I sort of fell into this, the very early days of this organization that was called STAND. And STAND was focused on action in Darfur and Sudan. This is the middle part of the last decade. So about 2004, 2005. College students, we made a website, which wasn't obvious at the time. And we got some early media attention as we focused on genocide prevention in that region. And then somehow six months later, there were 1200 chapters of this organization in a dozen countries. And people just kept writing to us and said, I want to start a stand chapter. How do I do it? So it was really eye-opening to me to see what a couple of sort of dedicated but still imperfect people and some early technology could do. And that set me on a course of just thinking about, well, what else is possible with a small group of people that really care about something?
0: And so originally that meant getting more directly into politics.
1: Exactly. So I was fortunate to run into some folks at moveon.org early in my career and move on. For those of you that don't know, invented a lot of the best practices in digital fundraising that later became part of a lot of key political campaigns. So I got to work with a really small team there, but that was organizing millions of people around different progressive causes. So that was super interesting. And then one of my coworkers there went to go work for president Obama after he was newly elected in 2009. And I came along with her and was lucky enough to go run all the email fundraising team there. So really interesting chance to see what technology was doing, not in a for-profit context, but in the political context. So you're responsible for all those emails we're getting? I have an old boss that used to tease me and say that that more people had unsubscribed for my emails than anybody on the planet. I don't think that's true anymore, but it might've been true at the time.
0: Well, clearly it was very effective. Um, what was it like at change.org? I imagine somewhat a transition between the startup world and political.
1: Yeah, change.org was really interesting because I had never even considered working at a business. It just wasn't what I was thinking about. And Change.org was doing some some really cool things, but also having a lot of growing pains. I got there, I think there were only 11 people. So it was very, very early. This was about 2010. And small team, and I was the first sort of social justice-focused person there in terms of having a background, in terms of having values. And we were able to Make it just much more possible to do some of the things that we were doing with Obama, or I had seen other parts of the nonprofit world do. And the theory there was, instead of trying to lead a big movement, which I had been thinking about previously, how do we put these tools in in the normal person's hand and let them change the world? And what we realized at Change.org was that the impact that you can have when you you help elevate other people instead of being at the front of the movement yourself was just extraordinary. And the things we were able to accomplish around the world was pretty remarkable. And so. It was also my first experience with a startup. I had never realized that organizations could grow from 10 people when I got there to about 300 when I left. And that shift is so, uh, it was a real big mental shift for me and thinking about startups as a force for good, as opposed to business as just this sort of other thing that was unrelated to social good or social impact.
0: Do you remember when you had that realization or any stories of the impact that you did have?
1: When I got to change.org, you know, political campaigns are a little bit different, and that they move pretty quickly. But most nonprofits don't. And when I got to Change.org, and I realized, wow, we're hiring a person a week, and we're able to get this incredible technology with great engineers. And I learned what fundraising was, and how to how to how startups raise money and get capital in order to grow. And it was the speed of it was so differentiating. It wasn't that you couldn't do all the same things we did as a nonprofit, but just the pace of startups and how much impact was derived from velocity was really eye-opening. So that happened pretty early.
0: Speed. I think that is a defining characteristic of a startup in my opinion. Growth, that's happening fast. And that's the speed that you're talking about. You decided to leave there. Where did you go next? Was it back to school? So
1: almost. I had a brief stint in between at a food startup. That was trying to work on some local food delivery systems. And partly my experience with change.org was so powerful and so moving that I thought, wow, all startups must be successful. And that one wasn't. I didn't start it, I joined as the VP of marketing. But it had some real challenges around user growth, around cost of acquisition, around how much it costs to actually deliver local food from farms to people. And so that was almost as eye-opening as being at Change.org for four years and seeing the mistakes that a startup can make and what are the things that can really drag it down. So I spent maybe a year there, really interesting, gave me more exposure to C-suite life and what it was like to be a senior leader in an organization like that. But ultimately, it wasn't the right thing. And so at that point, I decided not just what was the right next role, but what did I want to change about the next 20 years of my life? And I realized that there were a lot of things I didn't know, and a lot of things I didn't know I didn't know. So I decided to go to business school. I was on a a trip with one of my close friends, who's now the interim CEO of Change.org, and brainstorming all sorts of possibilities for life. And that one came up. I came back, and I realized, wow, applications are due in about 28 days. So I had to relearn trigonometry to take the GMATs and a whole bunch of other sprints. But I was really fortunate to end up at Stanford and spent a lot of time even before that thinking about what are the next great possibilities in terms of mission-driven startups?
0: I want to dive in there soon. But first, I want to ask, at the farm startup, can you remember any lessons or things you told yourself, I'm going to do it differently when I have a turn? I I think one
1: one of the old jokes in startups is we lose money on every transaction, but we make up for it in scale. And that was certainly true of this food startup. And so I think starting off with the premise of what is fundamentally a good business? And startups sometimes are so fast growing that they don't even bother to think, well, if this goes well, is it even still a good business then? And so making sure the fundamentals were down pat immediately was really key. And also I think being extremely customer centric. So it took us a little bit of time to make sure we had had what consumers wanted. And I think in free will, we started out and said, we are going to listen first as opposed to being these great visionaries that just impose our will on the world, we'll be really focused on what our users want, what nonprofits whom we work with want. And I think that was a big shift. And I think that the thing that goes along with that is people often talk about startup founders as these charismatic visionaries, but in many ways, along with velocity, the most important attribute for a startup founder is humility. And being open to being wrong at every turn, and then learning from that extremely quickly.
0: That makes sense to me. How did you meet your co founder for FreeWill?
1: So I met Jenny two weeks into school, maybe even less. And one of the things at Stanford is that they don't actually let you do group activities in the first month of school. So no clubs, nothing like that is allowed to, to gather because people need to focus on their academics first. And for me, I am just not that patient a person. So I organized my own shadow event around social good at Stanford. And frankly, also going to business school, I was worried I wouldn't have any social good friends. I thought maybe five or six people would come when in fact something like 100 people came, which was about a quarter of the class. And I met Jenny among many other people for a few minutes and immediately noticed how obviously brilliant she was. And so we decided to go on a walk two days later Went on a 22-minute walk, talked incredibly fast, realized that we might be really good partners, but there's still a lot to explore. So we went out to dinner a few nights later for three hours, and I like to tell people that this was a campus restaurant, and I found myself really surprised when Jenny brought her own food to the restaurant. But she is sort of famously frugal, and at that point, we realized that she should definitely at least take over the CFO role on top of anything else. And from there, it just took off. We spent the next Saturday together, probably worked for six or seven hours and realized that we both really clicked and really liked the idea around free will. And we've been off to the races basically since then, a little more than four years to the day.
0: So when you first started talking, did you already have the idea for the company?
1: I did. So before going to grad school, I really had the instinct that I wanted to create a social good startup and I didn't know what it was gonna be. What I realized is that ideas like anything else is mostly just practice. And so I made a point of coming up with three or four or five business ideas every day. Many of them were totally awful, but some of them were good and some of them I might start in the future. And having that practice and discipline really, really helped. And then one day when I was doing my own estate planning in advance of some international travel, I thought, wow, this process sort of sucks. I'm also surprised how hard it is to give charitably during this process, meaning when you make a will, no one ever asks, hey, do you wanna leave 15 or 20% or whatever to a, a cause that you really care about, even though that's gonna be the biggest gift you ever make. And so from all of my time working with Obama and move on, a light bulb went off and said, wow, we've made it so, so easy for you to donate $10 at the click of an email. Why is it so hard to give $10,000 or $100,000? And that was the origin of the idea. Had been noodling with it, did a little bit of user research, but didn't really feel confident to do it on my own. And then I met Jenny, and my confidence in the two of us was significantly higher than my confidence in myself. And we were off to the races from there.
0: Oh, I love this founding story. How you got the idea, and then how you found your co founder. These are the two barriers uh, that are top of people's list on why they haven't started a company yet. And your insight about, Ideas is about practice. It's about repetitions. I really believe that any kind of creative endeavor, um, having more brainstorms, more practice, more paintings, more shots on goal, just keep the practice going, and you will have better ideas in the end if you have more ideas. I
1: think that's exactly right. And I would challenge. I talk to so many people that want to be founders and don't, and just say, "Well, but I don't have an idea." Free will is such a good idea comedians will tell you that telling good jokes come from comes from telling bad jokes and just practice and the same thing is true just if you have a list of 300 business ideas there'll be some gold on that there'll be a lot of crap frankly but that's okay that's part of the process and some people are afraid to look stupid or afraid to have bad ideas but just getting in your head and every day thinking what makes a better backpack what makes a better chair what kind of software would make my day better today all these things everywhere you look, you start to see things reveal themselves. And it gets you in this really good habit. It also gets you noticing exactly what is the business that I'm interacting with on the web, in my life, in the car, whatever it might be. So it's a it's a really big insight. And when other entrepreneurs are thinking about starting a business, it is my favorite thing to do alongside them.
0: It is so much fun. How do you decide which one to work on?
1: Gosh, it's so hard and I wish I could tell you that I came up with some McKinsey style framework to decide which. Deep down, this was just one that really, really excited me. And I I think a lot about not will it go well or not because anything, any startup is unlikely to be successful. The big question for me is if it goes well, what happens? And, And knowing that we're swinging for the fences means that at least you have a shot at doing great world changing things. And so I could envision how free will could raise billions and billions of dollars for charity. And that made me really excited about it. Some of the other ideas could be good businesses, but they weren't gonna change the world if they went, even if they went really well.
0: That sounds like a good decision criteria. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Uh, So going back to your story, you were talking about you and Jenny decided to work together. You were still students in Stanford. What are the first steps you take to make the business a reality? So, the
1: first thing actually, and I was telling some of our new teammates this yesterday, the first step for us was actually defining values and making sure that we were aligned on the values we wanted to run a company with. And I think that solved a ton of challenges down the road because we were totally aligned up front. And I think one of the keys to having a great co founder is someone who is different from you in skill sets, in perspectives, but has the same values. And so that was really key. And then we were really lucky to be part of a a class called Lean Launchpad, which is the Lean Startup methodology. It's taught by Steve Blank and a guy named Jeff Epstein and a couple of other really smart folks at Stanford, different Jeff Epstein, by the way. And that that class just preaches, move fast, create hypotheses, prove or disprove your hypotheses and move on. And so we were we were tasked with talking to at least 10 potential customers a week, every week. We were running experiments every week on top of being full-time students. And it was remarkably fun, incredibly challenging, but it really built this discipline of intellectual rigor and intellectual humility that I think has cascaded into free will going forward.
0: And you dove in full-time right after graduation.
1: Right after graduation.
0: I mean, to be honest, I
1: think we were we were full-time within three months at grad school and we're do, we're part-time students and full-time entrepreneurs. At, by the time we had started our second year business school, we were managing two people, two full-time staff and real revenue and some other products, it was fast and furious pretty early because once customers say yes, then you have to make sure you're catching up with them. And then we moved to New York summer of 2018. So a little more than two and a half years ago or about two and a half years ago. And at that point we were about five people. And so it's been a full sprint since then. We're about 67, 68 today in the last two and a half years and grown pretty considerably.
0: Wow. Can you share any numbers about your growth uh, besides headcount? Sure. I mean, one of the most exciting things is that at this point,
1: we've generated about $2 billion in new gifts for charity. A lot of those are deferred, meaning someone's written them into their will or their trust, so they won't happen immediately. But we're seeing a ton of giving overall, and that's really exciting. So on a normal day, we raise about $3 million for charity, which just makes even the normal days super exciting from other areas of growth we've gone from one product which is this tool that helps people make wills or make makes living trust but also include charitable gifts in them to other types of giving as well so now we provide folks with easy tools to give stock which is an incredibly powerful way to give if you're listening and you have appreciated assets and to help people give out of their IRA so we've gone from one product to three we've grown from 5 people to about 65 and then from a couple of nonprofits. We're closing in on maybe 450 different organizations that we work with, including many of the leading nonprofits in the world. So we've been thrilled. And one of the really interesting things about having more clients than we used to is that the learning curve is even faster. And so we get amazing feedback from our partners who are just incredible and doing incredible work on the planet, but also really, really smart about giving. And most of our partners don't have great in-house tech teams. So they're just throwing ideas our way all the time because they could never build them internally. And it's been such a gift to get to work with them because our pace of learning is so much faster than it's ever been.
0: So how do you manage growing uh, the existing product while launching new ones? Do you have different people working on them? How do you divide your own attention? How do you think about that? That is a great
1: question. And probably one of the biggest challenges, right? Do you optimize the things you have? Do you go exploring for new things? And we face that question all the time, and I don't know that we've always nailed it, but we think about the real allocation isn't money or time, it's really focus. And so at this point, we have a team that's an internal task force entirely focused on one product, and they've been able to move mountains even in the last 60 days just by having that much focus. And so we make sure that every product and every aspect of the product has a very clear owner in order to continue moving forward. But it is an ongoing question as to whether or not you double down on existing products or include it. And the way we pick new products is what will bring existing, more value, excuse me, to our existing customers. One way to think about this is you can change your market, meaning you can sell the same product to different people, or you can change your product, but not your market, meaning you sell different things to the same people. And really, you can only pick one. And so we look at, We have these great relationships with our nonprofit partners, what else do they need? And where else can we use technology to really enhance their ability to hit their own goals? So we're constantly looking for those. And because we have the feedback from so many nonprofits at this point, we're able to build them and grow those new products more quickly than our original products when we just didn't have the same user base.
0: That's wonderful. Now you talked about how early on you and Jenny got very clear about your values and that that's been helpful along the way. Are there any specific examples you can think of, of how those values have guided your decisions as you run the business?
1: Sure. So our four values are focus, kindness, joy, and courage. And I think the focused element has really allowed us to rally everybody around extremely clear goals. So every week we have a team meeting, Those those team meetings align on the same four goals. Or the goals have been updated quarter for quarter, but everyone knows exactly how we're tracking at any one moment to our core priorities. And that sort of alignment, I think, is something that's often underappreciated at a lot of startups because you have so many overachievers going into startups who are used to having that dopamine of being helpful that sometimes they can do helpful things that go in unhelpful directions. And so we try to be extremely clear with folks around what their goals are and how that feeds into our own overarching goals as a company. And that helps us move much faster in a straight line as opposed to going off in different tangents. So that's been a key piece. And then, on the courage standpoint, I think we really like going to learn about topics that we know nothing about and being unafraid of going into new spaces or understanding new types of giving in this case, because we think of intellectual courage as a real value. It also gives us the confidence to hire people who may not have a perfect set of experiences for the role that we are hiring them for, but have the aptitude to do it, knowing that their pace of learning is quite high. So everyone who comes in, we look at, are you a tenacious learner? And you get scored on that in the hiring process itself.
0: I like how you're getting into talking about your management approach and principles. I'm curious if there have been any changes that you've made with COVID and people work from home has that changed how you manage? It has and it hasn't.
1: I, I think in part because we invested on so much alignment at the front end, people have continued to be just extraordinary at their jobs through COVID. And keeping our eye on the ball allows us, I think, to actually be a little bit more creative. So we have this value of joy and when we're not in the office together, it means a whole bunch of different things. And so sometimes that is things like hosting a team-wide talent show and sometimes it's just thinking about how do we intersplice joy into our regular everyday cadence. So that's been a big piece. But frankly, I'm surprised at how quickly our team has adopted, even having a lot of faith in them. It was really just three to four days of hiccups before you got back into a really steady groove. And then one other thing to note about COVID is that I think obviously COVID is a, a, a terrible for lots of reasons in a difficult economic environment. But if you're a founder or if you're a new startup, there's a key lesson here, which is for us, we see that when the world changes, startups like ours are better at moving quickly to adapt than a lot of existing institutions, either that are our customers or that are other more established players in our space. And so this idea of when the world changes, so must we, but in that so must we category, startups are usually much better. And so any sort of big disruption like this gives more opportunity for impact or for revenue, depending on your goals here, and creates a lot of open space that might not have existed previously.
0: I agree with that. I wrote a piece a few months back about why you should do your startup now. If you've been thinking about doing a startup and you're spooked by the current environment, see this change as an opportunity and go for it.
1: Exactly. I think one example of that is we thought, while moving remote has all these costs, We just don't get to see each other as much. Frankly, I I get a lot of joy out of seeing folks on our team every day in person. And that's now out of the question. But also we realized, wow, this can help us bring jobs to parts of the country that we might not have hired from in the past because we were all in New York City. And there's a ton of really smart, talented people outside of major coastal areas who more of them are unemployed at the moment. And so we've been able to have really just incredible folks who don't live anywhere close to New York and can never join us otherwise, join us because of COVID and our remote shift. So again, every change brings new opportunities, even though it obviously brings new challenges as well.
0: Right. I'm curious to go back to your working relationship with Jenny and how you decided to be co-CEOs. It's not a title that I see that often.
1: Well for those listening, it is an incredible structure if you can work it out. And I think we've been really lucky to have put a lot of focus on it. And also, I'm just incredibly lucky to have Jenny as a co-founder. So I don't know that it's perfect for everybody, but it's really right for us. And the origin of this is actually, it's not how we started out. I was the CEO. Jenny was the chief product officer, also CFO. We didn't have a very big team then. And What we realized along the way is that this was actually the de facto way that we were operating. We had clear decision-making. We owned separate parts of it. It was always obvious who was making what decision. And we were really a team and a a pair more than a manager and a managing. And so one of the big benefits about us is that Jenny and I are very different. We certainly had different backgrounds. She grew up daughter of Chinese immigrants in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in the Northeast. We have different aptitudes, we have different weaknesses. And so it's been a really great setup. I mean, folks that are CEOs on their own just have so much asked of them and it's very unlikely they'll be good at everything. Neither of us are good at everything, but we're we're really lucky to be good at opposite things and really lucky to be bad at opposite things. So we don't have the same glaring weakness that I might have as an individual or that Jenny might have as an individual. So the key is to being a great co-CEO. So much of it is in communication and a lot of it is just upfront work so who is making what decision and before you get into conversation make sure you establish that decision making structure because then it it allows you to freely share all your opinions and it's not a negotiation it's just a consultation and so it makes the other person much more open to listening it also just allows us to i think be more dynamic and present with our team because one person can only do so much all
0: right i had a co ceo relationship In one of my startups, almost, we didn't quite call it that way. And people were often surprised at how quickly we could come to a decision and how firmly we stayed aligned uh, despite all kinds of things coming at us. And so when it works, it really works.
1: It it can be really great. And coming back to our, our conversation about velocity, you can make more decisions more quickly. And we don't agree on everything, but we agree on the overall process and framework and have an extremely high degree of trust in each other. And so it allows us to move very quickly. And if we get 90% of our decisions right, but we make them three times faster, that's a huge win. And it will be a huge win for any startup.
0: One thing I do wonder about is how do people who are either newer to the company or outside like me, for example, know how you're dividing responsibilities? For example, I reached out to Jenny. I know her better as an investor. Uh, to invite her on the podcast and then you come on. So how how do other people know how to interface with the co-CEO group? Great question.
1: So internally, we're very clear about who's making what decision. And if someone emails us both, I will say, this is my opinion, but Jenny's the decision maker or vice versa. And then from a reporting standpoint, Jenny manages the product, the engineering, the finance team, the operations team, I'm more focused on marketing, sales, and partner success. So it's very clear in that world who's making what call. And then when someone like you emails and says, we have this, either there is someone who already owns it. So for instance, if it was a new nonprofit who wanted to talk, I would probably handle that conversation. If it was an investor, it would be clearly Jenny. In this case, Jenny emailed me and said, I can take it if you like. This is my calendar's a little bit more booked. You should take it here. And so, it very that decision was made in a matter of minutes, and we went from there. So, at this point, we have probably. Wonderful. I'm glad to have you. Together. I don't mean
0: to question the decision. I was just using it as an example of how you work together. Um,
1: exactly. We probably made a thousand decisions together, and we've gotten really good and smooth at it.
0: Now, if I may turn your attention more to the future, um, a couple of years or more down the line, where would you like to see free will? Where would you like to see yourself in your career?
1: There are probably a couple answers here. I think if free will is wildly successful, we've gone from where we've currently raised $2 billion for charity to $200 billion, and our thinking about free will is one of the dominant philanthropic forces on the planet, and that will be very, very exciting. For the company, I would like us to have a place where a lot of the leadership that is at Free Will is a diverse and wonderful set of people, many of whom already work at Free Will, and that we're able to grow people's careers in a significant and accelerated and exciting way. And then for myself, partly this has been spread on by COVID, but I have learned so much in the last month, in the last six months, in the last year. And my real hope is that that pace continues. Startups are grad school on steroids, just a remarkable amount of learning. Miles, you know this, that the speed of startups and the speed of growing organizations means you are forced to learn something new basically every hour. And if that can keep up over the next four years, I think I will be very grateful for where I am.
0: Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I have a real love of learning. And I think that's one of the things I harnessed in my startups and uh, certainly see that happening all the time. Um, Do you have any more advice you would offer for a founder, an aspiring founder of a mission-driven startup?
1: Maybe I'll just close with two thoughts. One is coming back to that idea of idea generation is if you feel like you ever want to start a startup in the next one, two, five years, start today and just keep a running list on your phone so you always have it handy and just try to come up with two business ideas a day and you will be able to do it. It is much easier than you think it is, but it requires a little bit of focused attention. So getting really good at idea generation is obviously one of the first key parts. And then the second is keep an eye out for people that you would love to work with. And I feel just incredibly grateful to have found Jenny and to have built a strong partnership there. And then also I feel incredibly grateful for the rest of our team. And just keeping this ongoing list in your head of people that might be great co-founders, they might be good employees. Great teams can do anything. Your your initial idea is going to be changed a dozen times anyway. And so if you're with people that are excited, ambitious, tenacious, and ready to move quickly, and you have an idea, it's a great start, and you'll go from there.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You clearly have an understanding of how you did it, and I hope other people are inspired by it. Free will is very inspiring to me, and I'm glad to be a very small part of the story. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Miles. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you are inspired today and wanna to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.